0: Here's a thought for you, it's an old thought, our God is good, but he isn't safe. Check this out, no man will survive their encounter with God. We we will either be punished in our sin and separated from him for all of eternity, or we will be redeemed, our old self will be buried, and we will be raised new in Jesus to live with God forever our God is a powerful God today is going to be a little different all right so uh, we've got two sermons you know in the same service it's going to be awesome and I know what you're thinking we're going to be here till like two o'clock we we made it through the first service on time and so I've got the first service, Mike's got the second one, there's no mermilliads involved, so I think we're probably, we'll probably be okay, alright? We say, well, why are we doing this? Um, we've been looking at church, uh, church Defined through the summer, and so we're looking to see what God has called and set apart His church to be. And we've specifically been breaking down our principles into our practices And last week, Pastor Paul introduced us to the practice of gathering for worship. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to pause and step back and realize when we gather, Jesus has commanded the church with two specific ordinances, two commands for the church given directly by Jesus, one baptism, the other the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to just break down the service a little bit today. And we're going to uh, take about 20 minutes and we're going to look at baptism. And then we're going to rejoice in the picture of the gospel that is baptism. And then we're going to take about 20 minutes and we're going to break down the Lord's Supper. And we're going to come together, remember the work of Christ, and rejoice as a church together through the Lord's Supper. And so... It's going to be fun. Aren't you excited? I see the excitement on your faces. I I can tell. You're pumped. You're ready to go. I got got to tell you, the first service seemed a little more excited, but, you know, um, I'm not not trying to to compare one to the other, but they're definitely more excited than you are. Okay. Baptism, all right? Many of us have a long uh, kind of standing uh, history with baptism. Uh, most of us, we just recently conducted a survey, most of us have been in the church for a long time. And many of you have been baptized and we have a pretty good understanding of what that means. But if we're honest, throughout history the church has not done well with holding up baptism. We've often either overemphasized it or underemphasized it. When we overemphasize it, we tend to see it as necessary for justification. In other words, I it's a matter of salvation. I cannot be saved and redeemed without the work of baptism. And then there's the other ditch that us, uh, leads us into kind of underemphasizing baptism where we really see it unnecessary for health or obedience and we just kind of see baptism as this thing of convenience that we just do. It's just like a good tradition. And if you get around to it, you know, kind of good for you. And we underemphasize baptism. What we need to understand is that baptism is a big deal. It is incredibly important. And it is the first command given to the Jesus follower by Jesus himself. It's how we respond to him. Through baptism, catch this, this is, this is profound. Through baptism, one proclaims to the world that they are now dead, that they're dead. All their pride, their selfish ambition, the pursuit of themselves is dead, and the life they now live is not their own. It is new in Jesus. Baptism is how we profess to the world that I and my old self am dead, and I am new, raised to life in Jesus. And so our big truth this morning is that the redeemed are commanded to respond to Jesus and rejoice in him through baptism. The redeemed are commanded to respond to Jesus and rejoice in him through baptism. So so let's take a few moments and just kind of break it down, okay? First, Jesus followers respond to Jesus through baptism. It's how we respond. It's how we respond. It's, It's... not just for a few it's really not left up for the church to decide how we respond and how we profess someone is in Christ it is a mandate given in scripture to every disciple every Jesus follower it is a command and we can see that throughout the New Testament probably the most powerful example that is in the Great Commission In Matthew chapter 28, as Jesus is sending out the church, he says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Who? All nations. All the disciples from every nation, everyone without discrimination, superseding their culture or their customs. They may say, you know, we don't really like water. I don't know a, a culture that does that. That would be weird. But maybe they do. But we don't say, oh, well, you guys in your your culture, you're afraid of water, we'll figure out some other way. It doesn't happen. Baptism as a command supersedes their comfort, it supersedes their, their preferences, it supersedes their culture and customs. Now, there aren't many things in Scripture that are really that way. Most things in Scripture, we're given a principle, we're told to pursue that principle, and there's a lot of freedom given to the specifics of that pursuit but not with how we respond to Jesus. Every person, every Jesus follower, from any nation, from any tongue, from any tribe, responds to Jesus in the same way, through baptism. That's the command. It goes back to the the Great Commission of how we bring disciples in to the family of God. Baptism is everyone's commanded response. But listen, not everyone who does a cannonball into the swimming pool in the name of Jesus is baptized, right? There's more to it than that. There there, there are some qualifiers, and I want to hold up two of them uh, for you right now. The first one is that we respond in repentance. We respond in repentance. Saving faith. Repentance. The Baptist faith and message does a beautiful job of articulating these two things. They are not um, really separate, this idea of saving faith and repentance. The Baptist faith and message says that faith and repentance are inseparable acts of grace. In other words, you cannot place saving faith in Jesus and not repent and turn from yourself to Lord and Savior Jesus. And you cannot repent, turn from yourself to Jesus without saving faith in who he is. Faith and repentance are inseparable acts of grace, driven, inspired by the work of the Holy Spirit in the Jesus follower. And so what we need to see is baptism leads us and calls us to respond to Jesus, but we respond in repentance. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter's preaching and he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain... That God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, when they heard the gospel, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Baptism follows repentance. By the way, just really quick, if this was the only verse that taught us about salvation in Scripture, we would clearly interpret that verse to mean baptism is a work that is necessary for salvation. But we have the entire Scripture to kind of put into context and give us the lens, the context in which we interpret Acts chapter 2. But one thing we must see is that repentance is a prerequisite to baptism. When a believer is buried in the baptismal waters, they are proclaiming the death of themselves apart from Christ. And when a believer is raised out of those baptismal waters, they are proclaiming the new life they now live, they live in Christ. See, repentance is a prerequisite. How's that for a picture of repentance? Which just means to turn. It means to completely turn, to do a 180. Think about this picture in baptism. You were proclaiming to the world I in all my sin and all my selfishness and all of my uh, sin nature that would drive me to be the very enemy of God that would go contrary to him, and his purpose and his calling, my selfish ambition. Remember, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm flying first class on the selfish plane, right? All that kind of stuff, right? That's dead. That is not the pursuit of my life anymore. I don't pursue myself anymore. I repent. I turn. I leave it behind and I fix my attention and my gaze and my faith and my hope and my life in Jesus. That old self is buried and dead. And behold, I am new, raised with Jesus. That's the picture that baptism gives us. See, baptism doesn't just... You know, like bury some of us. It's, it's another. I mean, baptism means to immerse. We we believe baptism is through immersion. But even in the picture, it breaks down if it's just some sprinkling. Listen, the picture of baptism is that you are buried. You are buried, not part of you. All of you. Some of you doesn't die. All of you dies. And what comes up out of that is completely new in Jesus. We see repentance, this turning, is a prerequisite to baptism. The old has passed away, never to return, and we are new in Christ. The second qualifier we see is that we respond in identity. Dead to self, alive in Jesus. Our identity has changed. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, baptism is not about what you're turning from, but it's about who you're turning to. Baptism is a picture of our identity in Jesus. And it publicly, to the world, identifies us with him. We are identified with Jesus. We are identified with His church, His people. And for those of you who have been baptized for a long time, don't miss this. We are identified with His holiness as well. It's good for us when we see baptism not to just celebrate with the individual who is proclaiming to the world that they are new in Jesus. By all means, church, celebrate with them, but we also should reflect on what our baptism has proclaimed, what we professed when we were baptized, because it is a good reminder in our daily lives of how we are to live, of where our identity is, and where our pursuit should be. Paul brings this up in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Here's what Paul's questioning. He's questioning our pursuit of holiness in Christ. Our Christ-likeness. And he's saying, okay, we realize I offer no righteousness on my own and my righteousness is found completely in Jesus, so I just keep on sinning and do whatever I want because it's all in Jesus? He says, certainly not. Certainly not. Listen to the picture that he uses to describe it. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Here's the point. You, your desires, your freedoms, your self centeredness, your your prideful ambitions, it's all dead. That's what you proclaimed. The life that you now live, you live in and for Jesus. That's your pursuit. The pursuit should never be our freedoms. You died to that. It should be Jesus. Do do you have freedoms? Sure, you do. But that's never our pursuit. Our pursuit is to use every freedom, every second, every hour of our life for the purpose of him. And listen, in our culture, we, we've forgotten that. And baptism is a picture of that because baptism exposes a false gospel in its picture, in its symbolism. See, baptism exposes this idea that I can add Jesus onto my life. It exposes the idea that I can make Jesus my co-pilot. Right it exposes this idea that I can live and find identity in Jesus too. See, baptism exposes all that and clearly proclaims that's a false gospel. It holds up a picture of what Jesus said for those who wish to find their life they must lose it. Because saving faith and repentance says there is nothing in me apart from Jesus that is good. He is my everything. Does that mean you'll live perfectly? No. But it is the declaration and profession of faith that is in every authentic Jesus follower. And in our culture where saving faith has been so reduced to some general belief or controlled remorse, this kind of idea that I'm going to add Jesus on, baptism gives you a clear picture of the gospel. And in the Bible Belt South, even in this room, some of us would do well to look at the picture of baptism and measure our salvation and our saving faith and repentance against its lens. There is a reason it is the way we respond to Jesus for every Jesus follower, for every disciple across the world, is because it pictures the cost of discipleship. It pictures what genuine saving faith and repentance looks like. Death to self, life in Jesus. And so the next thing I want us to see is the Jesus followers, man, we rejoice in Jesus through baptism. We rejoice in Jesus through baptism. Yes, we respond to Jesus through baptism, but we also rejoice. Why? Because baptism points to Jesus. It's ultimately about him. It's, it's a picture of his work, not our work. We rejoice in him. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Okay, listen, I know it's awkward sometimes to talk about circumcision, If you miss the understanding of circumcision, you're going to miss a lot in the context of Scripture. If you go back to Genesis, you you see that circumcision is identity terminology. It was a mark given to God's people that the world, they, and him acknowledged, these are my people. It's a way they were identified with the Lord. So what Paul is saying here is there is an identity that we have in God's family that comes through Jesus. It's ultimately about him. It's not about the act. It's not about the work of the flesh. Our identity is in him. We rejoice in him is what he's saying. So catch the picture then as we go into verse 12. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. His work. Who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all our trespasses. He erased their certificate of debt with its obligation that was against us and opposed to us. How did he do this? How did he take away our sin debt? And has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. In other words, through faith, pictured in baptism, the Father identifies us with Jesus who has paid the penalty for our sins on his cross. Baptism is a picture that I am dead, but I am new in Christ and I rejoice in the work of Jesus because he has done something I could never do. He is my resurrection. He is my life. He's my everything. Baptism is not a saving act. It's not a saving work. The work is done by Jesus. We rejoice in him. Baptism is an act of obedience and a proclamation and a response to the gospel that pictures the work that is done through faith in Jesus. Paul I, there's a lot of places you, you could explain that in terms of just the theological unpacking of the New Testament. My favorite example to kind of hold that up is when Paul's talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there's dispute within the body and they're kind of arguing about who their preference is, who their leader is, who baptized them. And the idea is this, they're taking their identity and they're putting it in men. And Paul says in verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, is your identity in me? Here's what he says, verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you. That's a powerful statement except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And Paul, I mean, a brother after my own heart right here, verse 16, oh, wait, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. I like that. He forgot, had to go back, you know, ask somebody. And then he started thinking about it more, because beyond that, uh, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Love Paul. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And again, Paul, like me, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Do you think if baptism was a saving work, Paul's going, I thank God I didn't save any of y'all. He's not saying that. I think God isn't going to lead anyone to Christ. No. It's a clear understanding that the cross of Christ is the power. And so when we talk about baptism, what I want you to see is it's a picture of the gospel in which we respond to Jesus and rejoice in him. As the guys coming up, we're going to sing a song and just rejoice in the picture of baptism. As they do, I want to give you three ways you can respond. First, if you're here and you're unrepentant, There's never been a time in your life where you've placed saving faith in Jesus, dying to yourself and saying, you are everything. You are Lord. You are Savior. I would challenge you, maybe for the first time in your life, pray. Go before the Lord and acknowledge that your sin has separated you from Him, your Creator. And that there's nothing that you can do on your own to overcome your sin. And yet you realize that he loved you enough that he would send his son to pay the penalty for your sin. To take the cross that we'll see pictured in just a moment. To give his life so that through faith you might be reconciled into the family of God. So that you might be saved, redeemed as we talk about baptism the first thing that you should do is repent for those of you who are here who are redeemed but to this point you have not responded in baptism whether through disobedience or maybe just for the first time right now you're placing saving faith in Jesus be faithful to the command that God has given you and respond in obedience proclaim to the world The old self is dead, and through faith in Jesus, you are new. And third, for those of us who are here, who are baptized Jesus followers, reflect on your identity. Remember that the profession of your faith was not to add Jesus on, but was to lay down your life, to bury it, and to never return. But with every second with every breath of your life to pursue him as Lord and his Savior and rejoice because you have not lost anything in this encounter regardless how we may feel about it in our sin nature you have gained everything in Jesus and so what I'm going to ask you to do now is just stand If you need to pray and respond personally, you can. But we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And we're going to rejoice in the picture that is life and identity in Jesus through baptism.
1: All right, so the Lord has given two ordinances to his local church. We just looked at one in baptism. And now we're going to take a few minutes and look at the second one uh, called the Lord's Supper. And Paul walks us through that in 1 Corinthians 11. So we're going to take a look at that. But let me just kind of set up. Uh, why are we doing this and help us set the framework for the Lord's Supper before we celebrate in just a few minutes. Now, here's what the Lord in His great wisdom knows about every one of us. Uh, all of us have a major problem with forgetfulness. Amen? Uh, our, our memory fades over time. Things don't remain as sharp as when they first occurred in our minds and in our memories. So God in his great wisdom has given us something within the church, a consistent pattern in the church to help us remember. Now sometimes we forget minor things like meetings that we're supposed to attend, or we forget where we put our car keys, or we forget where we parked our car, or whatever the case may be. Sometimes it's a little more important things that we forget, like birthdays, or men, we forget our anniversary, that's a no-no. no no Uh, Sometimes we forget people's names that we've known for years and years, right? And we all know that awkward moment when this person comes up in the grocery store and they're walking toward us, and you've known them forever, and, man, you just space it and you can't remember their name. And what do we do as believers? Hello, brother. It's so good to see you, sister. Which is code for, I just spaced your name. I just forgot your name. Sometimes we forget really significant, important things. Sometimes we forget significant events or people or accomplishments in the past. Or we forget things in history that were before us that have incredibly significant meaning in our lives. And we forget sometimes not only that these things happen, sometimes we forget how important these things are to us. Let me give you a couple examples we have built-in reminders in our lives to help us remember the significance of things. Uh, as a nation, we have holidays we celebrate. We're, we're getting ready to celebrate a holiday coming up on 4th of July. It's a significant holiday that's built into our rhythm so that we will remember the blessings that we have as Americans and, and how thankful we are for our freedom. So it's a holiday that is built in to remind us. Uh, There are memorials all over our country. Maybe you've traveled there with your family, you've traveled there to some point. Some of the memorials, like the Vietnam War Memorial or the Pentagon Memorial that took place on 9-11, or or my family, one of the most significant things Jennifer and I have ever attended or visited is the 9-11 Memorial in New York City. It was built there and placed there after September 11th and what took place. And uh, the, two, uh, the two footprints of the World Trade Center are now these reflection pools. And around the edges of those reflection pools, go and go to the next slide, are the names carved in of every person that died on September 11th. So you go to this memorial and this memorial is there so that, now watch this, So that future generations will never forget the significant thing that took place in the past. And you go to this memorial not just to remember that it happened. You are to walk away from that memorial literally feeling the sense of man something not only happened but it was incredibly significant. So the Lord, in His great wisdom, knowing our own weaknesses and our forgetfulness, has built in something into the rhythm of the church that is intended to help future generations never forget the significant event that took place in the past. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's built in to be a regular rhythm of the life of the church so that we never forget the cross, the significance of the cross, and the gospel and the message of Jesus. So here's the big truth we're going to chase for just a few minutes about the Lord's Supper. Let me be on the screen. It's this big truth. The redeemed are commanded to remember Jesus' sacrificial work and rejoice in Him through the Lord's Supper. So here's what I want us to do this morning. Before we celebrate in just a few minutes, we're going to come down. We're going to take the Lord's Supper I want to help us remember, as Jesus has called us to do, the significance of the Lord's Supper and what it means as we remember the cross and then rejoice in the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you can look there, beginning in verse 23. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to a local church, a body of believers somewhat like this maybe, many years ago, who had misunderstood, they had distorted the Lord's Supper completely. So Paul's writing to help them correct some of those errors there. So verse 23, he writes, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Let's stop right there. So Paul's writing, but he's hearkening back to the Thursday night before Jesus was crucified. You guys remember in the Gospels? Jesus had gathered his disciples together. They're there in that upper room. He knows he's hours from the cross. He's hours from his death. Gathers his disciples together. And Paul said on that night in that upper room he took bread. And he broke this bread, verse 24, and he gave thanks and he said to them. All right, fellas, this bread is now going to take on a significant symbolic meaning. This bread is now going to symbolize my body. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying, present active verb there, he says from now on, ongoing repeated pattern is you are going to gather as the people of God for generations to come. And you're going to come together and you're going to break bread and it's going to symbolize my body that's about to be broken for you tomorrow. That's going to be a recurring pattern in the life of the church for generations to come. Jesus commanded that. The word remember here, if you write in your Bibles, you might want to circle that word so you'll understand why the Lord's Supper is so important. The word remember, do this in remembrance of me, literally means a memorial. That's where we get the word memorial from. It's from this original word. In other words, Jesus says, for generations to come, there's going to be a regular time that's like a memorial that you come and you remember the cross and the significance of the blood of Jesus that was shed on your behalf. So he says, do this in remembrance of me, verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he said he took bread, now you're going to take a cup, fruit of the vine, and this is going to represent my blood that's going to be spilled out for you tomorrow. Do this from generation to generation to generation. Do this in remembrance of me. Now it's interesting, there's a little note there, Jesus says, as often as you drink it. Some people say, well, you know, how often should a church like ours celebrate the Lord's Supper? Should it be monthly? Should it be once every year? Should it be every week? Well, here's what the Bible says, as often as you drink it. (laughs) In other words, you might argue how often we should take the Lord's Supper, but you sure can't come and say, well, the Bible says you're supposed to take, the Bible says as often as you do it. It's left up to the local church. We try to celebrate it at least monthly as we can, as we gather together in the assembly of God's people. It's given to us to celebrate together as God's people, and that's the way we practice it as a church. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. How long? Until he comes. How long are we going to keep doing the Lord's Supper? Until Jesus comes and we don't need to do the Lord's Supper anymore. And by the way, are we going to do the Lord's Supper in heaven? No, the Lord's Supper is going to be replaced by another supper called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Forever and ever. So Jesus' followers, let me just give you a few takeaways from this as we get ready to celebrate. I'm going to give you a few big ideas that flow out of this big truth. And here they are. Number one, Jesus' followers remember... The finished work of Jesus through the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper to be a recurring regular practice so that we remember in vivid fashion the cross and the death and the blood of Christ. The word remembrance, again, is to call back to mind. It is to call back into memory a vivid experience. So in just a few minutes... You're going to come down if you know Christ, if you're a, a guest this morning and you're not a member of Tri-Cities, but you know Christ, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. But You're going to come down and you're going to take a little piece of bread, and that is not just to be because we're hungry this morning, all right? It's a small piece of bread, I promise. But when you take that bread, Jesus says, and you're going to break that bread, it is to be a vivid reminder that the body of the living Son of God was broken on your behalf to bear your sin and mine. It is to be a practice, a vivid exercise, because I tend to forget what's really important Churches tend to stray from what's really important. And listen, I'll tell you, I believe God in His great wisdom has given us an anchor called the Lord's Supper so that we as a church will never drift too far from the gospel and the message of Christ. So you're going to take a cup and it's going to have juice in it. And that juice, again, is not cause you're thirsty. That's not the point. The point is that is to remind you... That you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. First Peter says, our redemption is made possible because of the perfect, spotless blood of one. His name is Jesus Christ. There is no other. There is no other. So we're to remember the work of Jesus as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Secondly, Jesus' followers rejoice. Oh, it's to be a time of rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus Christ through the Lord's Supper. So in a few minutes, again, it's just like when we went to that 9-11 memorial. We weren't there just to recall that an event had happened. When you leave that place, you have seen pictures and artifacts and you've heard testimonies. And you walk away going, not only did something happen, something incredibly significant took place. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is to bring back to your mind the great significance of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ that was crucified for you. In other words, as you take the Lord's Supper this morning, I hope and pray that you are reminded that God became a man. (laughs) The incarnation is pictured in the Lord's table. I hope you remember that you have been, you have been, you have received complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ. By faith you have received redemption. He has bought you. He has paid everything necessary for us to be made right. You have been adopted into the family of God. You have been made acceptable before a perfect, holy, righteous God because you could never earn your acceptance on your own. But today in Christ you stand fully accepted before a holy God why because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his price he's paid for you rejoice I hope you rejoice in the fact of the freedom that you've been given in Jesus the identity that you're given in Jesus the future coming of Jesus we take the Lord's Supper and Paul says every time you take it we're going to take it until he comes it's also a reminder that there is a day that he's coming to make everything right rejoice rejoice in all that is true about you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians and he says, Hey, because they had taken the Lord's Supper and they had so distorted it and so twisted it, he said... Some of you are coming to the table and you're fighting with each other. You're bickering with each other. Some of you are coming to the table and you're just gorging yourself because you're hungry. Some of you are coming to the table and you're just going through a ritual. Some of you are coming to the table. And Paul, this is early in chapter eleven. You can read it. Some of you come to the table and your mind's somewhere else. Some of you are coming to the table because you think it earns God's favor. The Lord's table in no way earns God's favor. It is a reminder of everything necessary for God to be completely pleased in you has been done in Christ. Rejoice. Jesus saves. The table reminds us of that this morning. And we rejoice in it. So before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, I want to do one more thing. There's, there's one more point. I'm going to invite the team to come on up and, and just begin to get ready. We're not finished, but there's one more thing Paul says here that's really, really important. So we, we, remember, we remember the blood and the body of Christ, his finished work. We rejoice in that. And then another thing Paul says here that's really important, number three, is this. That Jesus' followers prepare before celebrating the Lord's Supper. In other words, I'm going to read just a couple verses again, verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Paul says, okay, here's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Here's what it means. And then he says, so before you take the Lord's Supper, let me just give you some more words of challenge. Paul says, verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner should be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. Whoa. Man, Paul, you just ratcheted it up a notch. What, 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 what does that mean? Now listen. Now listen, don't lose. Don't. Stay with me. We tend to read the idea of unworthy manner, and, and here's what might go through our mind. Okay, have I done everything I need that I can make myself worthy before God? Let me clearly tell you in the gospel, there's not a thing you can ever do to make yourself worthy before God. That's not what that means. The word worthy means equivalent to. In other words, as I take the Lord's Supper, is my life now as a believer in the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, am I walking in a manner worthy and equivalent to all that Jesus has done for me? Am I walking in a manner worthy of that calling, not to earn that, but in light of who He is and all that He's done? In other words, do we see and are we reminded of the significance of who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done? And do we look at our lives and say, "Oh Lord, there's areas of my life as a believer that I want to, God, I want to change for your glory. So what are some ways I believe it's possible for us to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? And I just want to ask you to kind of enter into a time of worship and contemplation, it's just you and the Lord right now for a few minutes and then we're going to celebrate together based on what Paul says here we are to examine ourselves and in so doing then drink the cup so let's have a few moments of that, for example number one I think we can take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner by taking it without saving faith in Jesus Christ in other words if you're here this morning and you've never by faith trusted Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, believed in Him and Him alone. The Lord's Supper is not for you. The Lord's Supper is for those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you don't know Christ, your first step is to right now, right there in your seat, or when we dismiss, go talk to someone in the prayer room, but to cry out to Jesus in faith and Him alone. He has paid your sin debt. He is alone your Savior. Call out to Him in faith. Way before you ever take the Lord's table. You also may be here and you may not be rejoicing. You may be a believer, but man, the gospel has become very dim to you or you're going to come and you're going to take the Lord's Supper and it's just kind of ritual to you, or you're just going through the motions, or it's just the thing to do this morning. I pray before you take the Lord's table, you ask the Spirit of God to awaken and set your heart ablaze to His glory and the gospel and all that has been done on your behalf in Christ. God, set my heart aflame. God, burn away the lukewarmness in my heart. Burn away the distractions. Burn away the apathy. God's building the Lord's table to remind us of that on a regular basis. I think we can take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner by, as a believer, deceiving ourselves about particular sins in our own life. There's something in our lives that we know is not honoring to the Lord, an attitude, a habit, a practice, and we are unwilling to call it what God calls it. He may call it sin, you call it what God calls it. You'd be willing to say, Lord, I reject that, I turn from that, I forsake that. As a believer, Lord, help me to confess, repent, turn from it before you take the Lord's table. And fourthly, it may be that there's unresolved conflict between you and a brother or sister in Christ. I'm not talking about a situation that cannot be resolved and you've tried and you've given every effort. Romans says, so far as it's up to you, be at peace with all men. I'm talking about a situation that you know you've wronged a brother or sister. You know you have ought against them, as Jesus said, and you've never tried to make it right. Maybe that before you take the Lord's Supper, you need to go to someone in this room and ask their forgiveness. Be that before you take the Lord's Supper, you say, When I leave this building, I'm getting on my phone, I'm sending a text, I'm going to somebody's house, and I'm going to make it right with that brother or sister in Christ before I take the Lord's Supper. Let so me invite you just to bow your head for a minute. I'm going to give you a second there for reflection and, as Paul says, self examination by the Spirit of God. And then I'll come back in just a moment and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.